Good to see you tonight. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We're studying the Psalms, and in particular, we're studying the 15 Psalms of Ascent, beginning in Psalm 120 and continuing through Psalm 134. And tonight we've come to the sixth Psalm of Ascent, uh, Psalm 125. So I invite you to turn with me there, and we'll read these uh, five verses together in just a moment. Now let me uh, pass on a word. Uh, I've been asked to remind you that there will be a work day here Saturday from 8 until 5. If you need any information on it, call Ryan and uh, he can give you all the information you need. But if you would put that down for this coming Saturday, 8 to 5. Okay? Well, Psalm 125. If you have uh, the King James Version, uh, you'll notice at the top, instead of saying a song of ascents, it says a song of degrees. And I thought I might just say a word about that. You might wonder why the difference. The Hebrew word is the word to go up. And the King James Version is a word picture when it says the song of degrees. It's a word picture of a sundial and the advancing of the uh, sundial, going up the sundial. And so uh, it's called the song of degrees. It's really the word which means the, the, a psalm of going up. Uh, or as it has here in the New American Standard, the psalms of ascent, meaning going upward. And uh, so um, it, it's the word that's translated, for example, whenever Jacob went up the la or had the vision of the angels ascending and descending up the ladder. You remember that story? Well, the word for ascending is the word here, or to go up. So these are psalms that were designed. Actually, it's a hymn book within a hymn book. Uh, all of the psalms are the Hebrew hymn book. These 15 psalms are a separated hymn book to themselves, kind of a book within a book. And so they had a special purpose, and that was for, uh, to be sung as the pilgrims would ascend to Jerusalem en route to the various uh, feast days uh, of the Jewish people, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Festivals, and that kind of thing. Um, you see, the Jewish males would make that trip uh, at least three times a year. And as they would travel together in community, it was a long ways, uh, and it was often in dangerous, dry, desert terrain. And it was uphill. If you've ever been uh, to the Holy Land, you know that when you leave Jericho to go up to Jerusalem, Jericho uh, was the last major town or city before you get up to Jerusalem. And uh, it, by bus, it'd take about 20 minutes. But it is ascending from 600 feet below sea level to about 2,400 feet above sea level. So in that short amount of time, you're walking very steeply. They didn't have air-conditioned buses back then. And you can imagine how 
uh, challenging physically that trip would be. And uh, so uh, they would sing to encourage one another. And, and these were the songs that Jesus and his family would have sung when he went up uh, to be dedicated. And uh, you'll remember at 12 years old, they would have sung these psalms. And, you know, and uh, so just think about, try to picture that in your mind. Now let's read Psalm 125. Let's hear the word of the Lord in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord. Now that's the theme of this psalm. Trusting in the Lord. Those that trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. The second theme, not a sub-theme, but a secondary theme to this psalm is security. So we're looking basically in this psalm at two things. Trust in the Lord and how that trust brings security to the believer. And so he says from uh, now uh, the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter, now some of your translations may render that rod, but basically it is that symbol of power that the sovereign king would have in his hand. An example of that would be the book of Esther. Uh, when Esther went in to the king. And, um, you know, it's, it's that if I perish, I perish story where the king had taken bad advice uh, and um, Haman had advised the king that he needed to uh, annihilate all the Jewish population. And the king didn't know that his own wife was Jewish. And so Mordecai, who was uh, Esther's uncle, basically her father, went to her and urged her to go into the king so that she might ask the king to save the Jewish race. And, and the story was that if you went into the king uninvited, you were in many ways signing your own death warrant. And the king would have his staff. And if he lowered the staff, then you were welcome to come on in, even uninvited. But if he raised the staff, it meant the rule of execution. And you would be taken out and executed. And so, remember Esther had said, I'm going to go in. And she told her uncle Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. And she went on in and the king let her in. Uh, the point is, that instrument that the king had in lowering it, he had all authority over life or death or, or raising it. That's the instrument that's here. That's the same thing he said. For he says, um, um, uh, verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness. Now that introduces us to the fact that the problem in the context of Psalm 125, and you know we try to set the setting so you can understand these psalms a whole lot better if you understand what's going on behind the scenes. And in a number of these psalms it's been easy to identify. You could recognize the setting whether it was Hezekiah or David, 
uh, the invasion of Assyria or, or whether it was during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's pretty easy to tell. But in this particular psalm, we really have only one clue <laughs> as to when it was written. And that one clue is so wide and broad that it could have been <laughs> anywhere in Israel's history. Because the one thing we know about the background for this psalm is that there was a wicked king on the throne. Now you tell me, if you've studied any of Israel's history, that could have been just about any time, couldn't it? In fact, it could have been the entire existence of the northern kingdom of Israel. Because in their litany of kings, uh, every one of them was an evil king. So it could have been any of that time. And then when we come down to Judah's kingship, uh, we would say that most of them were evil kings. There were a few wonderful exceptions like Hezekiah, uh, uh, jo uh, Josiah, uh, that you know, sparked a revival uh, in Israel. But for the most part, uh, this could have been written at, at any time. But notice again, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous. In other words, uh, uh, there are evil kings, but it's not going to always be that way. Uh, God will have the last word. C can we amen that as a general principle? <laughs> uh, not only then, but now, right? God will have the last word. Uh, this, this psalm is so relevant to where we are culturally today. You know, the evil seems to rule. And you and I are a an unloved minority. We're, we're, we're tolerated at the moment, but that's it. And I believe there's going to come a day when we'll no longer even be tolerated. Christians will be a persecuted minority. And in some places in our country they are already, and in around the world the persecution is advancing. And in the country that I love, I guess second to our country, is India. I've spent so much time there, and so many of my friends are there, and I, I hear from them daily, and many of them are paying a huge price for serving Christ. I don't know if you know it or not, but India is number 10 on the most persecuted nations in the world now. They, they've come up that list, and it's because their prime minister, Modi, is um, trying to get rid of every religion in India that's not Hindi, Hindu. Because he believes we're foreign intrusions and that India should be a Hindi nation and whether you're Muslim or Christian, he doesn't want you there. And so they are being persecuted. And on top of that, Muslims don't love Christians either. So we're being, uh, Christians in India are being persecuted by the Muslims who themselves are being persecuted and by Hindus who uh, are trying to run all Christians out of the country. Well, that being said, He's just saying that, that this kind of thing, this wickedness, is not going to be the final story. We'll look at that a little more in depth. For, uh, ver, so, so that the righteous will not put forth their hand to do wrong. In other words, the motivation for, for the believer is to know that, that this evil wickedness precipitated and led by the leadership, the king, is, is not going to stand, it's not going to last, and so whenever we're tempted to join that movement, that anti-God movement, out of popularity or to try to get rid of persecution, we're making a huge mistake. Because God is going to see to it that that's not going to be the last word. 
And then he says, verse 4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Uh, to those who are good. That's just another way of saying to God's covenant people. And it's just a, a, a colloquial, it's just a, a way of understanding those that do good in the psalmist vernacular meant those who are in relationship with God. And it was assumed that relationship with God produces benevolent good behavior. Okay? But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, I left out of one. And to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away from the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this psalm is dealing with the matter of security and safety of God's covenant people. And he's using a, a number of metaphors here, or really not a number, there's just two metaphors here to describe what, how secure we are and what our security looks like. Now I'm going to ask you a, a question. If I, what is the most secure place on the face of the earth physically? has that reputation. You got it. Fort Knox. Where's Fort Knox? Kentucky. Fort Knox. I, I did a little research on Fort Knox just to see how secure it is, just to have something to compare with. Uh, Fort Knox contains 4,200 cubic yards of concrete, 16,000 cubic feet of granite, 750 tons of reinforced steel and 670 tons of structural steel. The cost of the construction in the 1930s was $560,000, about $10 million in today's dollars. The roof is said to be bomb-proof and the main vault door weighs 20 tons. It is 21 inches thick. The treasury says no one person knows the entire combination. In other words, there's several people that have parts of the combination. You cannot open the door. One person cannot open the door. I discovered today that only one U.S. president has ever been in Fort Knox. It is one of the most private, secret places in our government. The real challenge to any would-be intruder is reaching the building in the first place. Fort Knox is guarded by members of the U.S. Mint Police, one of the oldest federal law enforcement agencies, and it was established in 1792. The officers undergo 12 weeks of basic training, followed by five weeks of, of field training. They learn a long list of duties. If that isn't intimidating enough, Fort Knox sits at the center of 109,000 9, 109, acres U.S. Army Post is at the training ground for military troops from around the country. The gold in Fort Knox is both secure and surrounded. I just heard that a few minutes ago. Did you catch that? Fort Knox is secure and it's surrounded. 
This is exactly what Psalm 25, 125 says about those who put their trust in the Lord. You see, this psalm is telling us that the Mount, Mount Zion and the mountains around Jerusalem are doing for the people of God what those 20-ton gates and those surrounding soldiers and all of that concrete and granite are doing in Fort Knox. They are protecting something precious. And the reason they are protected is because they are secure behind all of those walls and all of those soldiers, and they're surrounded by that whole army post. And so he's saying that, that the mountains, which are metaphors, the mountains, plural, and the one mountain, Mount Zion, are bringing to the people of, uh, of Jerusalem safety and security. And, and so here's what I, I want you to notice. Notice with me just a little bit about these mountains, this, this metaphor of, of the mountains. Uh, the first word of the psalm is trust God. Now, we can trust God because God has promised that He's going to protect us, He's going to give us security, and we don't have to fear. Now, notice the area. First of all, he says Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion was one of several mountains in that Jerusalem area. Jerusalem, if you've ever been there, is kind of like in a coffee cup. It's down in a basin, but it is surrounded by mountains. Uh, there's a number of mountains that surround it. Many of them, or just a few of them, you probably wouldn't recognize. Let me just mention two or three. These are the mountains that protected Jerusalem from foreign uh, kings attacking them and defeating them. And as you well know, they were attacked all throughout the Old Testament. They were attacked by Egypt. They were attacked by Syria. They were attacked by Assyria. And the northern kingdom, you'll remember, in, in 586 was taken captive. Uh, and that's the last we hear of the northern kingdom. They just disperse. We don't hear of those ten tribes anymore. And then the southern kingdom was, was attacked by Babylon in 586. So all throughout the Old Testament we, we see where, uh, where these, uh, these foreign kings would come and siege it, because Jerusalem was not an easy city to attack but the way they would be successful is by setting up a siege and literally starving the people of Jerusalem out. And they would just wait them out until they would be engaged in cannibalism and all sorts of horrible things. And so finally they just have to give up. Well, uh, I want you to notice some of these mountains. There, first of all there was the Mount of Olives. Anybody in here ever been to Jerusalem? One, two, three. All right. If you ever go to Jerusalem, one of the things you will love the most is the day you go up on the Mount of Olives. It's an incredible, it's on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. It is the mount of where Jesus ascended from the disciples. When you look out between uh, the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem there is a valley and in that valley is a Jewish cemetery. And it dates back to before Christ. And the Jews buried their people there at the Mount of Olives because they thought that would be the site of the resurrection when God brings this thing to a conclusion. It is also the mountain upon which Jesus will come back. He says in Acts chapter 1 
as he ascends from, from the Mount of Olives, he says to his disciples uh, that, that uh, he's going to come back to this mountain. He said, uh, why, why, uh, the Lord himself uh, ascended to heaven and he said, I'm going to come back in like manner. And he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. So there is the Mount of Olives. That's one of the mountains. Uh, and then number two, another mountain that was there kind of protecting Jerusalem was Mount Scopus. Now we don't hear anything in the Bible about Mount Scopus, but it's important in biblical history because Mount Scopus was the place where Titus assembled all of his troops in 70 AD when they attacked Israel, when they destroyed the city, not leaving one stone upon another, and they absolutely decimated the temple. It was on Mount Scopus. Remember when we were beginning this study in I think Psalm 21, uh, Psalm 121, or Psalm 120, I'd have to look. But he says, uh, I look to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. Remember he said, I look to the hills, and the hills couldn't help me. Why? Because the hills were the place the enemy was camped at. And we're not going to get any help from the hills. If we get any help, it'll come not from the hills, it'll come from God. And so what he's saying here is this, uh, that the uh, the Mount, uh, uh, this Mount Scopus was the place where Titus uh, assembled his army. And then number three, here's the, the one that this psalm uh, addresses, Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Now let me read Psalm 48, 1 and 2 for you. you know, just write that out there. You don't need to look it up, but let me read it for you. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, where is that? That's Jerusalem. His, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So Mount Zion was a very important uh, and a very uh, uh, highly revered location. It was in Mount Zion where David is buried. Uh, it, it's uh, in Mount Zion where the upper room was, where Jesus had the last supper. And so it's a, it's a massive, solid rock. Mount Zion is a solid rock, a mountain. It is immovable. That's the point that the, the, the writer of the psalm is saying. Look again what he says. Uh, verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are as, that lets you know we've got a metaphor here, are as Mount Zion. He says, the person who puts his trust in the Lord has security and stability and strength like Mount Zion. And, and then when we don't trust in God, we're just the opposite. We're not like the solid rock, immovable rock, but we're like the waves of the sea. Remember, that's what the Lord said in, in the book of James. We're like the waves of the sea. We're like, if you're from Texas, we're like a tumbleweed that just flows with the wind and goes anywhere. That, when we don't trust in God, we're left without stability and without strength. Now, we who have entered into relationship with Jehovah, the psalmist says, we're immovable. Now think about that. True or false? That can be a bad quality. <laughs> True? Immovable can be true. Uh, it can be a, a bad thing. Why? Have you ever run into somebody who, 
who's immovable in a bad sort of way. They're married to their opinions. They're never wrong. They never, it would kill them to say, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's not talking about being stubborn. <laughs> He's talking about we, we're at the point where we are rock solid in our commitment to Jehovah God. That's the Old Testament way of saying it. Okay? Now, uh, then, then we come to the fourth mountain, Mount Moriah. That's where the Temple Mount is today. That's the place when you, when you top the mountain coming up from Jericho and you come to the top of the, of, of, the, of the mountain and you look down into the coffee cup and there is the old city of Jerusalem and there is Mount Moriah. And on top of Mount Moriah is the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock, it, it sits where the old temple sat. It is in the location of Solomon's temple. And when you study prophecy, one of the things that appears to be yet in the future is the rebuilding of that temple. And if that happens, then something's going to happen to the Dome of the Rock. And, you know, we're not, uh, we don't know exactly how God's going to accomplish that, but the Dome of the Rock is a gold-covered uh, huge dome and you can see it. It glistens in the sun. And it's extremely important. That area is one of the most second sacred place on earth for the Muslims because the Muslims operate that part of Jerusalem. And there are some days when you can't even get into the Dome of the Rock. Uh, it's, it can be dangerous because they have riots that break out there. The day we were there, the first time we went, we got to go see it. Second time, we didn't get to go see it. But the first time we went, we got to walk up and touch it, and I could see the bullet holes in the side of the Dome of the Rock. And underneath the Dome of the Rock, and why they call it the Rock, Dome of the Rock, is historically they say that is the rock where Abraham offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So there is Moriah. Moriah. Now here's the last one I'm going to mention. That's Mount Calvary. Now I'm just pointing out the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. They're around that, that coffee cup looking down on it, standing as a fortress to protect Jerusalem from, from uh, these invading kings. Now Mount Calvary, uh, we don't have to say much about Mount Calvary. That's one of the most sacred places on the Christian, uh, Christian tours. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you always wait until the very last day to go to Mount Calvary. And then you follow Mount Calvary by to going to the, to the tomb, the garden of the tomb. You see the place where he died, and then you walk into the grave because it is now empty. And, uh, but that's, that's Mount Calvary. Each one of these mountains tell a story about God's judgment, God's mercy, and God's redemption. Now, why do I take the time? Because I want you to see that all of these mountains, while they are physical mountains, they're also metaphors that when you look at these mountains through the eyes of our Savior and through the eyes of New Testament truth, they come alive. You see, it's, these mountains are, that's why he said trust in the Lord. See, trust in the Lord and, uh, as are Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As Mount Zion, he says when you trust in the Lord, you're like Mount Zion. You cannot be 
moved. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, we just talked about them, so the Lord surrounds his people. See, they're metaphors. Like these mountains around Jerusalem. So the Lord surrounds us and he protects us. Well, that's a great truth, isn't it? That's a wonderful, wonderful truth that the Lord protects his own. And, and, and not only, he just doesn't do it for a little while. Look at the end of verse 2. From this time forth and forever. <laughs> from now and from now on. You know, God's not going to forsake us. He's going to stay with us. All right, so that is the, uh, the, the metaphors of the mountain. Now, number two, I want you to look at the sinful sovereigns. Uh, the sinful sovereigns. And, and that's found beginning in verse 3. For, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Now, evil men with scepters here means the, their kings and their crooked, sinful dealings. I, I was reading John Phillips, brother, uh, in Psalms uh, this afternoon, and uh, I just had to, I had to share this with you. He says, and I quote, this little nursery rhyme uh, describes these evil kings who influence God's people. You, you remember this when you were a kid. There was a crooked man, and he walked a crooked mile. And he found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat, and he caught a crooked mouse. And all lived together in a crooked little house. Remember that? That kind of describes these kings, the underpinning of that. He was, you know, he was crooked. He was crooked. You know, that's what the word iniquity means. It, it, it's, it's, it's the idea of, of screwing something into the ground. <laughs> uh, iniquity means to, to it, it's crookedness. His business dealings are crooked. His home life is crooked. The money he puts in the bank is crooked. He doesn't know what it means to be honest. Now, if he did that alone, then that's his business. But the problem with these wicked, crooked kings were their influence on their culture. In, in Israel's history, as goes the king, so goes the culture. You see, uh, Jack Taylor told me one time, your Christian life will never rise to stay above the level of your praying. Then we could translate that in another way. Our culture will never rise above the level of our leadership. And so they set the moral tone for the nation. I'm not going to comment on that. But the kings would set the moral tone for Israel. And most of the kings were evil. And you see what he's saying here is this. He said, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous. Why? So that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. He says, I'm not going to let evil kings rule uh, forever and ever because when they rule, my people follow them morally. They follow them culturally. They follow them away from God. And the king was intended to be a priest and a king and a leader spiritually, and he was supposed to motivate them toward God, not against God. But the kings of Israel was doing just the opposite. 
You see that? He said, uh, he, he, we're reminded here that one of the things God gives us in terms of advice in Scripture, that if we're going to climb up this staircase, you know we call it these Psalms, the pilgrim staircase, we're on stair number six now, we're climbing up the ladder, it, it's progressive in terms of, of our Christian life. And he says if we're going to climb that ladder, we must maintain separation from the world. Now that doesn't mean isolation from the world. I, I used to misinterpret that. The scripture says in 2 Chronicles 6.14, be ye unequally yoked together. He said, be ye separate from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. Now what he's saying is this, the Christian, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, from our perspective, looking through the lens of our Savior, we are to be separate from the world, not isolated. We're in the world, we're just not of the world. We're not to pull away from the world, we're to love the world, but we're not to be like the world. Isn't that amazing how Jesus did that? I mean, look who he spent a lot of his time with. People we might shun. The woman at the well, you know, old Nicodemus and a bunch of those folks. The lepers, he actually touched them. But he was never confused as being a part of that world system. And, and that's what it means here. Uh, he's saying that we, we th this says to us that we're not to follow our evil leadership. I, I love the story of Naaman. You know, the king of Syria, and they, they, they invaded uh, Israel. And one of the little prisoners of war was a young girl that he took in as a slave in her household. And, um, and this young girl, now think about this. Put yourself in her shoes. She is now serving the man who may have killed her parents, who pulled her away from her home. She's now in a foreign land as a slave. And, and she hears that her master has leprosy. Now, I wonder how some of us would have felt. You think in our private conversations with some of the other slaves we'd said something like this, well, buddy, he's finally getting what he deserves. Yeah. The sooner the better. Let the boy suffer on the way out. You know, that kind of talk. She had in a human level, every right to say that. But you know what she did? You remember? She went to her master and what'd she tell him? I know where you can get cured. I know a man back in Israel, if you'll go and do what he says, God can cure your leprosy. And you know what? She was so influential that Naaman did just exactly what she said. And remember what the prophet told her, told him? Go dip in the Jordan River seven times. I, I, I heard a preacher preach a sermon on that one time, seven ducks in a muddy pond. Uh, pretty good title. And Naaman went, and at first he said, I'm not going to do that. We've got cleaner rivers in Syria. I'm not going to dip in this old muddy river here in Israel. And remember what his servant told him? He said, if he'd have told you to do it, he said some great thing, he said, you'd have done it. And that's when, and this, W.A. Crystal used this when I was a kid preacher. I've never forgot it. Such an incredible, poignant picture. W.A. Crystal, he pictured Naaman riding away from the Jordan. 
I'm not going to dip in that muddy thing. Riding away from the Jordan, going back to Syria. And that's when his little, uh, uh, I don't know, he may, may have weighed 400 pounds, I don't know, his, his little sidekick said to him, now wait a minute, if he had told you to do something great, you'd have done it. Why don't you go and do what he said? Here's the greatest, one of the greatest pictures of repentance in the Old Testament. He's going towards Syria. He turns that horse around. That's repentance. And he drives to the Jordan. He gets out. Dips once, still leper. Two, still leper. Five, still a leper. Six, still a leper. Seven, hallelujah, the leprous is gone. Amen? You see, she exhibits a godly attitude. A godly attitude. She, she refused to let her ungodly leader set her agenda, even though she was a slave. What an amazing young lady that was. Well, uh, let's, let's move on. Let's come to number three. Did I cover it all? Did I leave an empty blank? We, we're okay so far? All right. Some of you can't sleep if I leave an empty bank. Well, I just want to make sure I cover all of them. All right. If, if, if you didn't get one, come talk to me afterwards. I'll give it to you. All right, here, here we go. Here's the third one. Just some living lessons. Living lessons. And, and all this means is I want to, I want to apply this truth. I want to look at this psalm through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of our relationship with our Savior. And what does this, what does this psalm say to us? Well, here, here it is. Here's the first one. Jesus is our Mount Zion. Come to Him. Let me say that one more time. Jesus is our Mount Zion. Come to Him. I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. If you want to look at your Bible or just let me read it, this is an incredible statement. Remember, Jesus is our Mount Zion. You say, on what authority do you say that, Brother Tommy? Let me read this. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which, sounds, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. What's he talking about? talking about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. He said, you haven't come to a literal mountain where you hear the trumpet and you're, you're terrorized by the voice that comes from the mountain. For, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, Moses said. <laughs> now if Moses said this, you can imagine what everybody else said. Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come, hey, listen to this. You, Hebrews, Hebrews, writing to Christians, yes. You, you believers, you Christians. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. That's a good phrase. And you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood 
which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. And now he has promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Wow. What a great passage. Living lesson number one. Jesus is our Mount Zion. He's where we find security. Here's where we find strength. Here's where we find protection. Here's where we find everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? Remember what Jesus said? Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. So Jesus is our Mount Zion. Come to Him. Number two, here's the second life lesson. Evil is contagious. Avoid it. (laughs) Evil is contagious. Isn't it? I mean, we say to our teenagers, be careful who you hang out with. What's the scripture say? Evil evil companions. This is King James. I I memorize most of my verses in King James. Evil companions corrupt good manners. All that means is watch out who you hang with. You become like them. You, You become like who you hang with. And so what he's saying is evil is contagious. As goes the king, so goes the people. Bad company ruins good morals. Okay, here's the third one. Faith is the key. Faith is the key. Exercise it. Faith is the key. Exercise it. How do we appropriate Jesus as our Mount Zion? Faith. He that cometh to God must what? He that cometh to God must believe. Right? Hebrews eleven six. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. A number of years ago, I had uh, uh, Manly Beasley in revival. I, I honestly tell you, I was scared to death all week. Any of you ever hear Brother Manly, Brother Manly Beasley? I thought Manly was the closest thing to the Apostle Paul I ever met in my life. I, 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 honestly, when I went to pick him up at the hotel, I, I was nervous. I thought he could look right through me and see every sin I'd ever committed. I, I was just, he was a godly man. And he was one of the greatest teachers on faith I'd ever heard. And Brother Manley taught me this. He said, biblical faith has three dimensions. And I'm going to fill these blanks in and we'll be through for the night. First of all, biblical faith has an intellectual component. You can't believe something you haven't heard, right? How can you, how can you believe if you've never heard? That's what Paul said in Romans. So intellectual means that you you have to know something up here. You can't believe it if you don't know it. Okay? How can they call upon the Lord if they've never heard of the Lord? So it has an intellectual dimension. Number two, it has an emotional dimension. Once we know that it is what the Lord says, then emotionally we have to adopt the fact that this is true. 
It has an emotional dimension. And then it has a volitional dimension. Now here's the way that goes. Intellectually, we believe God can. Emotionally, we, we want God to do it. Volitionally, we trust God to do it. Many people never get past step two. They think they have faith, but they really don't. They know in their minds, they want in their minds what they know, but they've never stepped out in faith to appropriate it. It's like, let's just take Pentecost for an example. Pentecost, I mean Passover. Intellectually they know that they're to kill a lamb, spotless lamb, take the blood and put it over the door. They know that they're to do that in order to escape the death angel. They know that. Moses taught it, and so they understand intellectually what they're to do on the night of the Passover. Emotionally, they feel a need for that. I don't want the death angel to come and take my firstborn. And emotionally, they're moved by the truth of what they know. But until they act upon it and actually take the blood and put it over the doorpost, which is an act of volition, then the death angel will pass over, and if they haven't acted volitionally, they haven't exercised their faith, and they, their firstborn will die. You see, all three are elements of biblical faith. When I'm standing in a plane on the door, I know that parachute will hold me up. And emotionally right now, I'm feeling the need for that parachute to hold me up. But I never become a paratrooper until I step out the door. That's when I become a true believer. Well, that's a lot in five little verses, isn't it? You know, when you walk out that door tonight, we're not guaranteed we won't have stress. We're not guaranteed we won't have a car wreck. We're, we won't guarantee that we'll never get cancer. We're not guaranteed that. God never promises that. But one thing God does promise, that in the final analysis, evil is not going to win. And we are on the winning side. God may allow stress and trouble to come into our life, but ultimately and finally, we're like granite. And when the earthquakes come, a lot of other things that can be shaken will be shaken. But Mount Zion will stand solid and firm. And all God's people said,